You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. You know, now I got two, two things to say. If you're wondering about the outfit, uh, I've just gone back to my roots. No, actually, I've been traveling to the north so much that I thought I needed to represent. That's right. Okay? So uh, I hadn't had a pair of boots in 20 years, and man, I just miss them. I, you know, I just never was good at taking care of boots, and so my lizard skin boots, you know, they curled up because I never would keep them oiled and stuff and put three or four heels on them and soles and Went up, man, they are proud of boots. Now, if I was rich like Regis, see, I'd have some of those fancy boots. Mm. These, are, these are starter boots, and they were still $200. Mm. Do what? Oh, it's, okay, got it. Well, so I am representing in the north. I was in Reno, Nevada, and then last weekend was in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, they didn't know that. Most of the time in Texas, I'm wearing sandals, but (laughs) what they don't know won't hurt them, right? They always, you know, they always depict us Texans as like, we ride on horses. Yeah, exactly. And the other part of this is that my wife, when I leave the house, half of the time she looks at me and says, are you wearing that? (laughs) And so I figured, you know, jeans and black, 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 I can't go wrong. It's true. Even I can match these colors, so very true. So it's uh, you did well. It's safe. Derek was asking me a minute ago. He said, "Have you ever gone in 37 years, four weeks in a row without teaching?" And I thought, "I don't think so." Yeah, that makes me tired <laughs> to even yeah. think about that. So anyway, it's been uh, been good going to Pennsylvania in a couple of weeks for two uh, events with two different churches, and so you know God's opening some doors. This morning, we are beginning something that I've really been excited about. I've taught uh, on this particular book, I guess, in 40 years, a couple of times, and it's one of my favorite places in Scripture uh, for many reasons. But we're going to start this morning a study of the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And the thing about Nehemiah is many of you are not familiar with him because he wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a Moses, he wasn't an Abraham, he wasn't a a priest, he wasn't any of those kind of things. Uh, So we're going to spend some time today just kind of meeting and greeting Nehemiah to set the stage. So as we begin this verse-by-verse study, you will get to know him and you'll understand him a little bit more. What Nehemiah actually was, was a Hebrew captive in a foreign land. In fact, he was born in that foreign land, and he had never seen Jerusalem, had never been to the land of promise, had never experienced that, but he was actually born in captivity. Now, what I mean by that is that the Jews had been carried off into captivity. So let's, let's go back for just a moment, and let's, let's do a quick survey of the Old Testament so we can come up to, to the time of Nehemiah, so you'll kind of know where he flows in the, in the, in the uh, timeline of God's uh, history through the Old Testament. The Hebrew nation began with the call of Abraham. God came to Abraham. He said, Abraham, if you will go to the land I'll show you, I will bless you, I will give this land, and I will multiply your descendants. So that was the beginning of the Hebrew people. They lived there for quite a while, and eventually 
they went into bondage to Egypt. Okay, there were a lot of things that happened, but eventually they went into that four centuries of, of slavery, Egyptian slavery. Eventually, God delivered them out of that Egyptian slavery and Egyptian bondage through Moses. And they went through that wilderness wanderings, and eventually then they went into the land. And when they went into the land, into this promised land that God had promised way back there to Abraham, they divided the land up among the 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes of, of people. And they settled in, geographically in areas of the land by tribes. Eventually, they began to cry out that they wanted a king. You know, we want a, we want a king. And God said, well, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And they said, yeah, we know, Lord, but we want a king like all the nations around us. Now, that was a bad decision. You know, when God's people start saying, well, we want to be like the world, that doesn't usually end up very well. And, but they said, but we want a human king. We want a king that we can see like the nations around us. And so God gave them Saul. Now, Saul was a good-looking dude, kind of like me. But he was an empty suit. I mean, he was completely an empty suit. And so it didn't work out real good with Saul. But after Saul, then you remember King David came to the throne. And he had his ups and downs as well. And when David was gone, then Solomon rose to ascendancy. So he was the third king over the people of God. But when Solomon was gone, for a lot of reasons, there arose a dispute among the tribes, among the people, about who was going to be the next king. And there were, they had two candidates, and, and some wanted this one, and some wanted this one, and, and so they split up. So the united monarchy, the united kingdom, was split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So ten of the tribes of Israel gathered in the north around Samaria, and then the two southern tribes stayed in, uh, in Judah in, uh, around Jerusalem and around the temple there. So this is kind of the, the first church split, okay? They had a church split. And the northern kingdom had their capital in Samaria, and they, they had their own temple where they worshipped. And the southern kingdom had their, continued with their capital in Jerusalem, which was Solomon's temple. Eventually, because both kingdoms had kings, and some kings were good and some kings were bad, when the kings were bad, then they would lead the people into idolatry and all kinds of things. And God kept telling the northern kingdom, if you keep doing this, if you keep chasing after false gods, I'm going to bring my disciplining hand down upon you. And they just wouldn't listen. In 722 B.C., that's before, you know, 720 years before the birth of Christ, the Assyrians swept down from the north and sacked the northern kingdom and carried the ten tribes off into captivity. And they never reconstituted after that again. They began to intermarry with the Assyrians. And you remember hearing in the New Testament the area of Samaria in the Promised Land where they were the result of that intermarrying of those northern kingdom Jews with the Assyrians. And they were considered to be kind of worse than Gentiles to a full-blood Jew during the time of Jesus. So they came in and they just literally sacked the ten northern tribes and carried them off into captivity into Assyria. Things rocked on for about 150 years and in the southern kingdom, around Jerusalem in the temple, there were times of obedience, there were time, great times of idolatry and once again God comes to the southern kingdom, he says if you don't turn back to me and turn away from these gods, I'm going to discipline you and they didn't listen. So 587 BC the scripture says that God allowed the Babylonians to come down into the southern kingdom and they leveled the city of Jerusalem leveled the wall of protection, leveled the temple, and carried the people off into 
captivity in Babylon. Mm. So at this particular point, the, you know, the people of God were, were all in captivity. And soon the Persians came along. I think it was, I don't know, wasn't too long, a couple of decades after this. And they whooped the Babylonians. So now the southern kingdom, th- these Jews are in captivity to the Persians. And that is when Nehemiah comes on the scene. He comes on the scene where generations of God's people have been born under Babylonian and then Persian captivity, and he is one of those generations. He's never seen the promised land. He's a practicing Jew. He worships the the one true God, but he's never been to Jerusalem. He's in Persia, and it looks bad. At this particular point, folks, it looks really bad for God's plan. What was God's plan? God's plan was to use the Hebrew people, was it not? Out of whom he would bring the Savior, the Christ. Jesus was a Jew. But the Hebrew people are no longer in the promised land. The, t- the northern tribe, they're sacked, carried off to Assyria. The southern tribes, they're, they're sacked, they're carried off to Babylon. The, the temple has been torn down. The city is in shambles. And it just really looks bad for God's plan. But God's plan is never going to be overcome. Never going to be overcome. Over the course, as a matter of fact, of about a century's time, God begins a rebuilding project in the southern kingdom, in Jerusalem, and around the temple. He takes a full century to do it. Now, we get antsy when God doesn't do what we want him to do tomorrow, right? Exactly right. And the people of God, all of these captives, were crying out to God, when are you going to restore your people? When are you going to take us back? It took him 100 years, but he got it done because God has a different timeline than we do. And it happened in three phases, and Derek's going to share with you those three phases of restoration out of captivity. Yeah, so they're, they're really broken down into the three phases under three men of leadership that God raises up to bring three separate groups back into the land. Phase one comes under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Say Can that three Can you say that with fast. us? Yeah. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Uh, really, in order to understand what God is doing with Zerubbabel, though, we have to go all the way back to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied that Judah would be brought into captivity for 70 years, and that after that 70 years, God would bring them back into the land. Jeremiah 29.10, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And then, of course, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans and purposes. Yeah. So, so that coffee cup mug, he's talking to people <laughs> who he's about to send into exile for 70 years. I just want you to wrap your mind around yeah, that yeah, for right, a moment. Right. That, co- that verse is kind of pulled out of its context. Ripped right out of its context. Used wrongly a great time. So after 70 years, God does exactly what he says. He raises up a Persian king who has now taken the spot of Babylon. Persia, remember, sacks Babylon, and he raises up a Persian king by the name of Cyrus to fulfill this. This comes in 2 Chronicles 20, uh, 36, verses 22 through 23. He, he talks about, in the first year of King Cyrus, by the mouth of the Lord, God stirs him up and, and sends back a group of men to rebuild the temple, and that is done under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel. That brings into phase two. Phase two comes 60 years after Zerubbabel brings the people back to rebuild the temple. And this time, it is under the leadership of a man named Ezra. Ezra comes in, and while Zerubbabel was charged to rebuild the temple, Ezra's charge by God is to reestablish the Torah, 
to reestablish God's law. Now that we have a temple, we need to have a law that we are faithfully practicing and devoted to. The problem was that not many people were familiar with the law, and so Ezra is now charged to reestablish the law so that the temple can be used in its full capacity. The law being the first five books. The first of the five old. books, yeah. The Torah, the first five books uh, of Moses. First five I know, books in all your Testament. education, yeah, yeah, yeah. you use those big words. Yeah, right, right, right. So the... Uh, Let me give you a side note as well, because I think this is important for you to understand how this all flows together. That in your Bibles, we are right now in Nehemiah. Uh, If you go back one book, you find the book of Ezra. Ezra actually covers both uh, Zerubbabel's leadership and the Ezra's. The first six chapters of Ezra are all about Zerubbabel, and the rest of the book is all about Ezra. In the original Hebrew Old Testament, these were actually one book. It was just a book referred to as Ezra Nehemiah. And, and that is because this one book captures the three phases that God is bringing his people back into the land. Phase one, Zerubbabel, rebuilding the temple. Phase two, Ezra, reestablishing the Torah. And then that leads us to phase three, which is Nehemiah, rebuilding the wall. And phase three happens 13 years after Ezra is there, so 73 years after Zerubbabel first comes onto the scene. So this is a long process. And Nehemiah comes to... Uh, realize that though the temple is rebuilt and that the people in Jerusalem are practicing God's law, the first five books of the Bible, the city was still vulnerable to attacks and outside threats, which were still very plentiful. And so Nehemiah came to build, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, have another nation pay for it, and make Jerusalem great again. <laughs> That's... That's what he was doing. They had little red hats. It was amazing. So He worked on that all week long. Said it with as straight of a face as I could. It's just low-hanging fruit. I can't, I can't pass it by. Well, and he did make Jerusalem. And Persia did. did pay for it. And they did pay. I'm, not, I'm just I'm being accurate here. Right? <laughs> no, you really are. It's, it's what, it's it's what amazing, happens. It's amazing how history doesn't repeat itself yeah, right. sometimes. Right. <laughs> so this is where Nehemiah falls in Jewish history. But who is he? Who is he? There are several important things about him. One, as James mentioned, he's a, he's a Jewish exile in Persia. He's never seen the promised land before. But, but perhaps most importantly, this, is, this really forms the big idea that, that I want you to take away this morning. Nehemiah was just an ordinary guy. Yeah. That's, that's it. Now, and, and follow my reasoning here. If God uses Nehemiah and Nehemiah is a normal, ordinary person, then we can safely assume, here's the big idea, God uses ordinary people to mm. accomplish his purpose. That is good news for us. And that's the great message of Nehemiah. Absolutely. He's not a Moses. He's no. not an Abraham, He's although not. Moses was kind of an ordinary dude at one he, time. Absolutely. But, but if we're being honest, I mean, just be honest with, with yourself for a moment. When you read the Bible, when you read Paul or John, it's, it's difficult to like fully connect with those guys because they're apostles, right? When you read Isaiah... And stories about Elijah, it's like, yeah, that's really great, but they're prophets. Mm-hmm. I'm not an Old Testament prophet, but Nehemiah is just a normal guy. He wasn't a king, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't an apostle. He's just a regular dude that God chose to work through. And if he can work through Nehemiah, then he can work through people like you mm-hmm. and me. And the main reason, part of why we, we chose the terminology that we chose for this whole sermon series is for this very purpose. We, what is we, that terminology? We talked about being under the influence. Oh, okay. That's the... Uh, that's <laughs> Some the, of you remember that, don't you? Under the influence, yeah. This is under a good influence. This is a good influence, yeah. <laughs> we, we, when we look at Nehemiah, there's, there's really tons of leadership principles in this book. But the problem with using terms like leader and leadership is that if I were to survey the room right now, a vast majority of you would probably say, well, I'm not a leader. 
You know, I'm not even cut out to be a leader. Maybe it's your past. Maybe you think you've done something that's disqualified you from that. Maybe it's your present. Maybe you're in the middle of working through something in your life and it's just not the right time right now. Maybe it's a problem of a skill set or a knowledge base. You don't think that you have the tools or the biblical equipping to be considered a leader. But the truth of the matter is, none of that really matters. God will use regular, ordinary people, people who exhibit four simple characteristics And none of those characteristics have anything to do with your equipping or your knowledge base or your past or your present or anything like that at all. But still, leadership, leaders, those are loaded terms. And so rather than talking about leaderships, we're going to be talking about influence. Anyone can influence anyone to do anything. You know, it's funny. We we use that term a lot nowadays on the Internet. There are people that are called influencers, Mm -hmm. and they're typically normal folks, right? And they, they do something that wounds up with 100,000 followers yeah, and, and that's, all this kind of stuff. And you, you look in their past and they go, well, that's just a normal person. What caused all of this to happen? Right. That's kind of the same thing with Nehemiah and what these characteristics that fit with Nehemiah can fit with any of us. Absolutely. And that's really, honestly, folks, how the ministry here at City on a Hill works. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm only one person. James is only one person. Our, the staff is not very big in comparison to other churches of our size. And that is by design. Because we believe that the ministry here is most impactful. It is most useful because of you, not us. My job is simply to equip you with the scriptures. Ephesians 4.12, Paul talks about pastors and teachers and shepherds. And he says that their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's my job. Your job then is to, with that equipping, go out and be influencers for the kingdom of God. Now, the question becomes, how? How do you do that? And I'm glad you asked. James and I are going to spend the last (laughs) part of this time together talking about it. You need to embody four characteristics, four simple characteristics that we see Nehemiah embody, and four that will, if you will embody them, allow God or move God into a place where he will begin to use you for his mission and his purposes. And it has nothing to do with your past, nothing to do with your skill set, nothing to do with your knowledge base. But if you will develop them, God will use you. It's just a basic principle of life. So let's jump in here. Here's the first one. You need to have desire. That's the first characteristic, desire. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give you a truth. Truth says influencers are people who desire to be used, that you desire to be used. In other words, being used by God begins with a desire for him to do so. If if you have no desire and God begins to use you for whatever his purposes are, you're going to likely be very resistant to whatever it is he's trying to do. And desire was really the heart of Nehemiah. When you look at him, the character as a whole, he wanted to be used by God. And if we're being honest, his situation was not a good one. (laughs) He was a slave to Persia. He'd never seen the promised land. The probability of the king letting him go to rebuild the wall was not high. But none of that changed his desire. And this is really where it all begins. When, when, When God begins to use someone, it begins with a desire for him to do so. Making yourself available. We say it a lot around here. I'll say it again. God isn't interested in your ability as much as your availability. God doesn't really care what you think you are good at. Understand that. Because whatever good, whatever skills, whatever tools you have to influence other people for the kingdom, they're gifts of God given to you anyways. They come from his hand, not your own. In fact, Scripture tells us even further that God is looking for people who desire to be used by him. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Did you catch that? 
That God's eyes are roaming around the earth looking for someone who is wholeheartedly devoted to his cause, who desires that God would use them for his purposes. God is looking for employer, employees. Yeah, he's looking for employees. <laughs> he's yeah. the ultimate employer. Exactly. Let me, ask you, let me ask you a question. Is God using your life to do anything for his kingdom? Is God using your life? And, and if the answer is no, have you ever considered why? Let me, let, me just, let me just speak honestly to you. It isn't because you're not, you're not ready yet. It isn't because you don't know enough about the Bible. It isn't because you need to get right first before God can use you. Spoiler alert, you're never going to get right on this side of eternity. <laughs> it's because you haven't made yourself available. That's, it's simply that. He uses those who desire to be used. Those who say, I, I don't know how God is going to use me or what he's going to do with me or where he wants me to go, and I don't care. I'm willing to be used by God Period. I'll let him decide the terms. I'm just, I'm available. I'm making myself available. Now, the question becomes, what if there's no desire? Like, what if you simply don't desire God to use you? <laughs> and, and that's a heart issue that you're going to have to wrestle with. For starters, you need to be honest about it, right? You need to just own it. You'll never get anywhere by living in denial, both in the kingdom and in the world. So start with honesty and then begin to pray. And begin to ask God to give me the desire to be used by you. It's a simple way that you can start to develop the desire for God is simply by asking God to give it to you. Here's another thing you can do, and this is, I think, ultra practical, but, but still very helpful. Surround yourself with people who do desire to be used by God. That's a big one. And then begin to do what they do. Watch what they're doing and go, okay, well, he, he desires to be used by God, and this is what he's doing, so I'll, I'll try that. One of the things we say in recovery a lot around here is you fake it till you make it. And people, people don't love that terminology, but here's what it means. It means you do something that you don't like doing until you like doing it. <laughs> you know, uh, it was kind of like uh, Paul said to, what church was it? He said, just, just follow my example. Just you follow be, my example. You yeah. want to follow Jesus, just follow yeah, me because yeah. I'm following Jesus. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you can't up behind me. <laughs> just watch what I'm doing. Im be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it means doing things that you're not necessarily wanting to do or interested in doing. But here's what happens is when you start to give yourself over to the mission and the kingdom purposes of God, it begins to excite you. And before long, you desire to do those things. So you begin to pray and ask God to give me the desire. Surround yourself with people who desire to be used by him. And it's only a matter of time then until God begins to move you in a direction. And that's the second characteristic that we have for you this morning. Let me give you a truth. God uses people who not only have desire, but then who get their direction from him, mm. okay? Now, what that means is people who have a desire to be used of God eventually will get a vision from God of what he actually wants them to, go, to do. So, so get this, where there is desire to be used, as Nehemiah was, he was a, a slave, he was servant to a pagan king, he owned nothing, but he had a desire to be used, then eventually God comes in and he gives a direction of how that desire can be fulfilled and can be carried out in the way that God wants it to be done. So when we begin next week studying 
in the first chapter of Nehemiah, it's going to become very evident very quickly that Nehemiah really had this desire. And, and he prayed over and over and over for God to, to be able to bring fulfillment to this desire that he had. And eventually what he does is he receives a direction from God about how that desire can be fulfilled about how God intends to use him. So he begins to get a vision of purpose for the fulfillment of that desire. But notice this, folks. Desire precedes direction. And quite often what we want is we want God to give us a direction to do, but we really haven't developed the desire to actually be used. So why would he give us something to do when he knows in our hearts that we really don't want to do anything, Mm. that we really aren't aren't consumed with this desire to have our lives used by him? And that's why Derek talked about that's a heart issue. Yep. That it, the desire part is a very much a heart issue. And once we get that in place, then we can trust the Father to begin to give us direction of how that can be used. Now, let me address something that, that has, you know, been something that I've heard, oh gosh, for the last 40 years, I guess, about the will of God that really has got this whole idea of God's direction and his will for our lives. It's got it really kind of all twisted up. I've heard Christians say many, many times, I'm praying that God's going to show me what he wants me to do. In other words, I'm waiting for direction. And, and that sounds very, very spiritual. But often, it seems, that is a cop-out for doing nothing. Well, I'm just not going to do anything until God just really gives me this map. And this, just, you know, he, he just lines it out for me, and I'm going to get it done. Now, I'm not doubting that God can work like that. There's no doubt about it. But that does not seem to be in sync with how, in what Scripture says about how God often, most often does it. In other words, Scripture gives us a completely different picture of how we get that direction from him. And it's really kind of based upon a principle of physics that simply says this, it's easier to direct a moving object than it is to get a stationary object moving. Mm. And those of you that are physics nerds, you know what that's about. It's the difference between static friction and kinetic friction. There's always friction. When two surfaces are are touching, there's always friction. But there's static friction and there's kinetic friction. Static friction is when an object is stationary. It's sitting still in contact with another object. And when that static friction is overcome with movement, then it becomes kinetic friction, the friction between the platform and that which the object is moving on. And physics tells us that it requires less force to direct a moving object than required to get a static object moving. Hmm. So once that object is moving, it's much easier to direct that object than it is to get the object moving in the beginning. And as I look at that principle of physics, I see it really represented in Scripture that it's a spiritual principle as well. It always works, it seems, in, in spiritual things. As a Christian who is waiting for direction from God before he or she acts is a static object. And God seems in Scripture to work most often with moving objects in order to direct them eventually where he wants them to be. Are you, are you getting this? You see, in God's call to Abraham, let's, let's talk about Abraham for just a moment. God did not give Abraham direction first. He called him to start moving. 
He said, you start moving. And this is what God said to Abram. He says, if you will go to the land that I will show you, I will bless you, multiply your descendants, and I will give this land to your descendants. But notice, God didn't tell him where the land was. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't tell him up front. Now, it's at, it's at uh, what, GPS, set your mm-hmm. GPS for so-and-so, you know, and we're going to get there. No, he said, if you'll go, then I will lead you. And so Abraham started moving, and God directed him to the land that he had promised. Now, it began with a desire. There was something in Abraham that said, I want to, I want to honor this God who has spoken. Because at the time, Abraham was an idolater. But the living God, the true God, came to him and spoke to him. And he said, I want to follow you. I want to be used by you. And God said, then get going, and I'm going to take you to that place. And if you do that, I'll give it to you, and I'll give it to your descendants. So Abraham became this moving object, and God directed him where he wanted him to be. I look at the great apostle Paul's life. We use Paul as an example of so many spiritual truths. Well, this was true in his life. He was the great church planter. He was sent out by the church in Antioch. He went on three great church-planting missionary journeys. He spent all of his entire adult life, after he came to faith in Christ, planting churches. Well, how did he know where to plant churches? How did he know? Well, he was willing to plant one anywhere. And so he just got moving, and he's going, well, every town needs needs a church. Every town needs the gospel. But in Acts chapter 16, it gives us a picture of how God really used and how he directed this man who was willing to be moving and doing something he didn't care where. On this particular missionary journey, he was going through Asia Minor, an area that was called Asia Minor at the time. Part of it was Europe, is modern-day Europe. And his desire was to plant churches all through Asia Minor. And so he left and he went to Galatia. And the scripture tells us that the Spirit forbid him from planting a church in Galatia. Now we know that eventually happened, but at this particular time, he said no. So he went on then from there, well, okay, okay, Lord, I don't know how the Spirit told him not to do it, but he did, he understood it. So then it says he went on to Mysia, and from there he wanted to go into Bithynia. I know these are all weird names, aren't they? But they were very regions of, the, of Asia Minor at that think time. think like, you know, Mansfield and then Alvarado. Yeah, yeah, and think about that. Joshua. Maybe a little bit further apart, yeah. but, Burleson. you know, yeah. yeah. So he, 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 wants, he wants to go to Bithynia now, but the, somehow the Spirit forbade him. I don't know how the Spirit did. He just said, no, we're not going there. And so then from there, he didn't just sit there. He went on to Troas. And the Scripture tells us in Acts 16 that it was at Troas that he got the vision of the man from Macedonia, says, come on over here. And it was in Macedonia that he ultimately ended up. And he started a church, he preached the gospel, and that was the first convert to the the message of Christ in all of Europe. Mm. Her name, it was a woman, by the way. Her name was what? Lydia. Her name was Lydia, and she was very important in the early years and in Paul's life after that time. But you see, Paul, he wasn't this stationary object, man. He's, he's, he's got a vision. I'm going to plant churches. I know there's a God, so I'm going. I'm going to go to this place and plant one. God said, no, nah, let's not do it there. Let's do it over here. Let them go to hell. No, <laughs> no, not really, because he actually did come back to Galatia and start a church in Galatia. Just now, right in the time. This wasn't God's time. And so he's just moving and moving, and he's listening to the Lord. And before long, he winds up in Macedonia, which was not a place that Paul probably even had on his radar screen that he was going to go. But this is where God wanted him to do his work. Do you get this? Paul is this moving object. He's out there. I'm going to do what God called me to do. He knew it was plant churches. He just didn't know where. And so as he went, the Holy Spirit 
directed him. Mm. God directed him one step at a time where he wanted him to be. And here's my point. Influencers aren't static objects. People say, I have a desire to be used of God, and I'm not going to do anything until he tells me what it is he wants me to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do all these things. Well, again, like I said, God can work that way, but I don't see that being the pattern in Scripture. The pattern in Scripture is when someone has a desire to be used of God, they start looking for a way to be used. And if you're not looking for a way to be used, then you probably need to back up to the heart problem of desire. But when someone begins to act out their desire, I don't know how God's going to use me, but I want to be used, and so I'm going to start moving. All of a sudden, God starts directing that object. Mm. And he puts them where he wants to be, where he wants to use them. I mean, how many of you can look back over your life? I I can certainly look over my life and go, wow, that wasn't what I had in mind. You know, when I got started on this journey, I mean, the Fearless Series for Women, that wasn't on my radar screen four years ago. All of a sudden, you know, okay, Lord, I guess. Isn't there somebody else you can use that knows a lot more about this kind of stuff? Yeah, there is, James, but I want to use you because I've chosen the foolish things of the world (laughs) to confound the wise. And that's true. It's just the way that he does it, right? Don't we love that verse? So true, man. Man, I'm a fool for Jesus. Mm. So do you have a desire to be used like Nehemiah? Well, if not, then that's, as Derek said, that's the first problem. That's a heart problem. You need to start dealing with the problem of the heart. Why don't you have a desire to be used of God? So for every Christ follower, listen, folks, we are called to be influencers. That's what we learned from Nehemiah. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. He was a slave in a foreign land. Mm. But he understood that he could be used by his God, and he wanted to be used. He wanted to become an influencer. So if you find something to do, you go, ah, this is not really what I wanted to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do it. Mm -hmm. Do it. Put your hand to the plow and trust that the Father is either going to use you there or he's going to eventually direct you where he ultimately wants you to be. So it begins with desire. Then God gave him a direction And then the third thing is Nehemiah had to depend upon him. That's right. Another truth here is that influencers are people who depend upon God. They're they're people who depend upon God. In other words, God's not interested in using people. Understand this. God is not interested in using people who think they have a better plan than he does. (laughs) It's it's not something he typically does. I tried that. That's why I went to law school. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. Yeah. (laughs) You have to be willing to relinquish control over your life, over who you think you are, over what you think you're capable of, and just allow God to move you in whatever direction he decides to do. You know, of all the 12 steps, I think the most important one by far is step one, is we admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. If you don't get step one right, you don't get any of it right. You cannot do the rest of it until you come to a place where you admit you are not God. (laughs) You are not God. You have no capability of directing your life in any meaningful manner in the same way that God does. It is the most critical thing for Christians to come to realize and understand. You know, often I think the problem in the Christian community, I'm just going to be honest, as an observer, I think the problem is often not a problem of desire and direction, but dependence. That's really where we get hung up. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes we have the right desire. We want to be used by God. I want God to use me. You know, yes, God, I'm here I am. Come and take me. 
and we begin moving in a godly direction. We, we figure out some place that we think God wants us to be used, and I go, yeah, right over there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself available over there, and I'm going to start doing it. A lot of Christians make it to that point. But then what happens is we're moving along, we're doing this godly thing that we think God wants us to do, and the Holy Spirit comes in to begin kind of redirecting us to where he wants us, and we go, well, wait, hold on a minute. I want to be here. Yeah, why are you changing my direction, God? I'm already moving in a good godly direction. Why, let me keep going this way. I don't want to go that way. This is what you want me doing, I mean, right? Don't they need help right here where I am? Right. Lord? Yeah, we have all the <laughs> desire in the world, and we have a direction we're moving in. The problem is it's my direction, not God's. And I'm not dependent on him enough to realize it and say, you know what, this is what I want to be doing, this is what I think God wants me to be doing, but it seems like God is moving me this way instead. Listen, by, by definition, we are dependent as Christians, by definition. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He's setting up the picture of our reality as Christ followers. He is the vine, and in him is life. All life, all productivity, all fruitfulness is in him. And as branches, the only way we can do anything productive at all is by remaining attached to him, dependent on him to accomplish anything that is fruitful. Because apart from him, we can do nothing for the kingdom. Not some good things, not like a lesser version of what God wanted, a plan B. Nothing fruitful in our power. That translates nada. Nada. Zilch. <laughs> Zero. You have to admit powerlessness and become dependent upon who he is. And that is the hardest thing, man. In the West, especially American Christianity, we are all about like pulling ourselves up for our own brute straps and hey, figuring now. this thing out and Be doing all now. this. Be careful and, now. And absolutely. And this is the mindset that we have. And it's a, it's a fine mindset when it comes to like the world and business and all those other things. As Christians, it's a crappy mindset. <laughs> you can't pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. You are dead in trespasses and sins until God mm. makes you alive, and you are dependent upon him to do anything purposeful for him. Now, the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we do that? There's a lot of ways that you can become dependent or express dependence on him. The way we see Nehemiah doing it most often is by prayer. We see him doing this a lot. We don't have time to dive into this much this morning. We're going to obviously go through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter in this series. But in the first chapter, that's pretty much all of chapter 1 is a prayer of Nehemiah where he is expressing his dependence upon who God is to use him in whatever manner God chooses to use him. And it's not the last time we see him praying. He develops a habit of prayer yep. to express this dependence throughout the entire book. But I want to I mention something to you because this, this action of prayer it works in two different ways, and there's a really interesting principle here that I, that I want you to be thinking about and begin practicing. Prayer is both an expression of dependence and a weapon of influence. Now, what do I mean by that? Prayer is not only how I express my dependence to the Father. So in, in my own personal time, as I am praying, God, give me more desire. God, give me direction. I'm dependent on you. I'm available. Move me wherever you want me to, to, to go. Sometimes... Prayer is also the very thing God has me do to influence other people around me. 
And so if you will develop the habit of not only praying when you are by yourself to express dependence on God, but also in the moment when you are talking to someone who is expressing some kind of life scenario to you, prayer then becomes this incredible weapon of influence. So let me give you an example. If you're talking to somebody and they begin to open up to you and share with you things that are happening in their lives that are maybe difficult, some hurt in their life or some kind of pain that they're walking through, a season that is really difficult that they're trying to make sense of. Maybe it's confusing and they're not really sure what, where is God in all of this and, and what is happening. Don't say to them, I'm going to be praying for you. Here's why. Because number one, let's be honest, you're not. <laughs> life, I'm just, let's just be honest about it. Life is busy. And you are going to feel very bad and, and sorrowful for that person, and you're going to walk away, and in the next 10 seconds, your phone is going to chirp at you, you're going to get a notification, and you will never think of that again until you see them again. There are like a special breed of people who like pray for every single person that they ever hear anything about, and most of us are just not that guy, if we're being honest, okay? <laughs> but secondly, you're missing an opportunity right there to begin influencing them. So rather than saying, hey, I'm going to be praying for you, say, hey, would you mind if I pray for you right now? Right now, right now. Some of the most impactful things in my life have come when I have shared something that I am going through, big or small, and someone has said, hey, can I pray with you right now just about that? I'm always so blessed by that. That, that is such an encouraging thing to me. It's pretty and, rare somebody's going to say, no. Right. No, I don't want your prayer. <laughs> of course they're going to want your prayer. And it doesn't have to be some big, lofty, in fact, don't make it some big, lofty yeah. prayer. Especially if it's in the moment, you're probably in a hallway somewhere. We don't need a two and a half minute prayer, right? Just something to show them, to influence them Amen. in a way that is kingdom-minded. Prayer not only expresses dependence, but it models dependence as well. And modeling dependence on God is a tremendous influence in the world, not only for Christians, but for non-Christians as well. You know, it's funny. I've just recently, in the last six months, gotten connected with a group of men, this men's encounter. Yeah. And they have a practice. When they get together, they say, somebody pray us in. And we, when they quit talking, they ask, somebody pray us out. Yeah. And that can be a phone call. I mean, they pick up a phone call, and they're talking to a brother. They say, let me pray us in. Yeah. And then when the conversation's over with, whatever they're talking about, let me pray us out. And I, I, I mean, it's pretty crazy uh, how meaningful that particularly is. It's such a simple way to impact people around you. And especially for, for people who don't know the Lord, it, it is, I mean, think about how many times do you as a Christian who are in Christian circles and Christian communities have someone in the moment say, hey, let me pray about that right now over you. If your answer is small, how much smaller is your non-believing friend's answer? It's, it's, pro it's probably never happened for the vast majority of them. So it gives you this really incredible opportunity to mm. pray in a way that really models dependence on God in a very powerful way. And it could mm. be the seed that God uses to eventually bring them to the Lord. You never know. One of the things I've figured out with these guys, don't share something with them if I don't want them praying for me. Yeah. Because they're going to do it because they're going to they get out of the room. And that's an incredible practice. Yeah, that really is a is. weapon of influence if I have ever heard one. I, I spent uh, a year studying with uh, a, a man by the name of Dwight Bingham at Southwestern. He's uh, the dean of the School of Theology. He's, he's a brilliant man. And every time we met, he would ask us what we, could, what, what we need prayer for, and he would pray. And his prayers changed me. I mean, it was just something about the way he was so real and so, uh, it wasn't long and lofty. It was just so in the moment and so heartfelt. And I learned to pray better under him. And so again, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian in your life, the ability to influence other people with this practice is, it's huge. So we have to have a desire. That's where it starts, in the heart. 
God, use me in, in any way you choose. And we begin moving in a direction. If you don't have a clear direction, begin moving in any direction that is godly, that you think God would have you do, but remain available and dependent on him such that when he begins to redirect you, because he likely will, that you're willing to go along with it. And then finally, influencers need to have determination. I've got five minutes and I want to wrap this up. Influencer, influencers ultimately are people who are not easily deterred. They are people that will not quit. They, in fact, they just don't seem to have quit in their vocabulary. So I want to ask a very practical question. It's rhetorical. Don't answer it. Here's a question. What does it take for you to quit? Mm. What does it take to get you to quit? A stimulus check. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. It was just it was that right That is there. so it's, true. It was just right there. <laughs> Man, did I lob him a grapefruit or what? Oh, goodness. He's on a roll today, isn't he? <laughs> Gonna build this wall and somebody else is gonna pay for it. Ooh, man. Okay. Can't help it. Well, no, seriously, that's a great question, though. <laughs> we gotta laugh sometimes, folks. You know, what does it take to cause you to quit? Somebody hurts your feelings? Is that about all it takes for you to quit? Or maybe someone that just doesn't appreciate you as much as you deserve to be appreciated. You get your underwear all tied up in a wad. Or maybe somebody disagrees with you. Well, I'm just going to quit. Mm. Paul was an influencer who wouldn't quit, just like Nehemiah. That's right. See, lots of people hurt Paul's feelings. <laughs> mm. They, in fact, they even said at one time they insulted his physical appearance. Remember that? Yeah. So he's got these beady little eyes. He's yeah. just a little wimpy guy. Yep. They didn't appreciate Paul of being an apostle of God. They, periodically, they threw rocks at him and stoned him. Everybody must get stoned. <laughs> they, they, mine aren't as good as his. <laughs> they ran him out of town repeatedly, and then they eventually put him in prison for preaching the gospel. But nothing stopped him. He just wouldn't quit. He did not have quit in his vocabulary. Philippians 1.3, he says to the Philippian church that he was writing, he was in prison at this time. As he's writing to the Philippian church, he said, but God has used my circumstances for the furtherance of the gospel. They were all worried about him. He says, don't worry about me. God's using this whole deal to further the gospel. He explains to us how that happened in verse 13 of Philippians 1. He said that his circumstances had been used to spread the gospel throughout all of Caesar's personal guard. See, Paul had, as a Roman citizen, had appealed to Caesar. Therefore, he was guarded by the praetorians, which was Caesar's personal guards. So he's chained here. He's got Caesar's guards. He's preaching Jesus to them, and the gospel is spreading through the Praetorian guard. Don't worry about me, he says. And then in verse 20, he says, Christ is going to be exalted in my body, whether in life or death. And then he says what he means by that, verse 21, therefore, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Don't be crying crocodile tears over me. God is using me. God is going to be exalted. If I'm alive, he's going to be exalted. If I'm dead, then I'm going to be with him. You can't beat someone like that. He just would not quit. Now, when we study Nehemiah, you're going to see that Nehemiah demonstrated that character. First of all, he was a slave. He had to have the king's permission to even go. He didn't have any materials. 
He didn't know what was going to be there, but he just didn't quit. God kept providing. He got there, and the people were lazy and didn't want to bother building the wall, and there were people outside that didn't want the wall built because if they built the wall, then they couldn't come in and, and take what they wanted. And so everything was in the way of getting this done, and Nehemiah just never would quit. Mm. Every step of the way, he faced obstacles. He had a desire. He had God's direction. He depended upon the Father. He constantly is in prayer. And then he just says, you know what? I will not quit. When I was growing up, we used to say, we're going to get it did. <laughs> that was him. We're going to get it did. And he did it in 52 days, which is a, a miracle in itself. You see, there are people that God uses to do great things, but they're typically not great people. Now, think about that. You look at the disciples. You look at Abraham. He was an idolater. He wasn't anything to write home about. Moses, he's a murderer. He's killed somebody. I mean, you know, God takes, they're, they're not great people, but he uses them to do great things. Last weekend, I was in Michigan. I'll close with this. I was in the Detroit area. Uh, I was there for three days. I was gone over Sunday because they asked me to preach in a church there. I spoke to a group of men on Saturday. I did a fearless event for women on Saturday night. And then I preached in a startup church that I'm helping to get started. That was only their fourth meeting Sunday morning when I preached. And it's a church I'm consulting with about starting that church and turning into a hospital church. I'm also working with a, a group out of Reno, Nevada to plant a hospital church in a little suburb called Sparks. Now, this pastor in Detroit, he's an interesting dude. I stayed in his home all weekend with his family. He's 47 years old, so he's not a kid. You know, he's 47 years old. He's married. He has three children, and here's the kicker. He's a full-time De Detroit police officer, mm. and his shift is midnight till 8 a.m. In, in Detroit. Now, I can promise you nothing good is happening on the streets of Detroit after midnight. So from midnight till 8 a.m., uh, he's policing the people. From 8 a.m. until midnight, he's shepherding the people. Now, but on top of all of that, he has planted a church that he has a desire to be a hospital church. Now, he didn't call it that in the beginning because at the, at the time, and he didn't call it that until last weekend, actually, because he didn't know about me when he started planning to plant this church. He didn't know about City on the Hill. He didn't know anything from anybody but he just knew he had a desire to plant a church that was different, where people could be honest, where healing could really happen. And so he just did it. He just started doing it. And then, after the thing had already started, the Lord led him to my book, Refuge. He read that, and he said, that's it. Now, get this. He had a desire to plant a church that was different, where people could really be honest. He just didn't know how to do that, didn't know really what it was going to look like. God put him in touch with Refuge. He he got that. Then he put him in touch with me and asked me to come up and ask if I would mentor him in this process. And I didn't even know he was a cop at the time. And so I went to Detroit last weekend. And, and I, I'm, I'm amazed. As a matter of fact, guys, if you go to our uh, men's encounter at Refuge Ranch, February the 25th, you'll get to meet him. He's coming down. He's paying his own expenses. He's paying his plane fare. He's paying the 199 bucks to be a part there, but he's not coming as a participant. He's coming as a servant to serve the men that are there as participants.
There'll be about 20 of those guys coming from all over the nation that will pay all of their own expenses to come and serve you. This 47-year-old police dude in Detroit and now church planter is going to be coming there, men, to serve you. We have six places left. If you haven't signed up, go to mensencounter.life. Guys, get it done. Mm. It's the Dallas event. It can be life-changing. But you see, that's what an influencer does. He's out, you know, handcuffing people at night, sometimes being shot at. And then he's planning a church where people can be, find help, hope, and healing. Now, why? Because he had a desire. He wanted to be used of God. God gave him a direction. We'll plant a church. He's dependent on the Lord from day one because he, Lord, how do we do this? How does this happen? And the guy just won't quit. I love that. Now, who is he? He's not some PhD in ministry. He's not some big name. He hasn't written any books. He hasn't done any of that stuff. He's just a Detroit cop that wants to do more than arrest people. He wants to serve them with the gospel. So he gets moving. <laughs> and before long, he's got the direction He's got the tools. He's got the people standing behind him that can help him. Isn't that incredible? So See, those, those are stories all over the world, folks. It begins with the desire. It begins with it. Lord, use me. Use me. Use my life. And then we get going, and he directs, and you depend on him, and, and you just say, you know what? I'm not going to quit. He may change my direction, but I'm just not going to quit. Hurt my feelings throw rocks at me, don't appreciate me, whatever. I just won't quit. Mm. You're going to find that in Nehemiah as we open the book and begin to study. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples of people like Nehemiah and Abraham, who was really nobody, the least probably uh, that anyone would point to, an idolater, to be used by you to start the plan of salvation. So there are men and women in this place that do have a desire to be used. I just pray, Father, that you'll show them how to put their hand to the plow and just get started and trust you to lead and guide. And those whose hearts really just aren't all that big, you know, they're just fine with showing up at church on Sunday morning, checking a box, but really don't have a desire for their life to be used to change their world. Not the world, but their world. I pray, Father, that you'll work in that heart, that you'll break the hardness around it, and that you'll soften it, give them a heart of flesh, and give them that desire so that you can use them. For this is our prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you.